We believe that every student should receive a school breakfast and a lunch every day in their school in order to be successful, just like they get bus to school or they get books or they get computers. We believe they need a meal, and we have studies that show that kids who receive these meals do better in school, have less absenteeism, and there are less behavioral problems. And not only that, and a tough study, university study, a few years back showed the healthiest food that kids eat is actually in schools. This is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with Patricia Montague, CEO of the School Nutrition Association, or SNA. Hey, Patty, welcome to the show. Hi, Joanne. Great to be here. Patty, tell us about the SNA. So the School Nutrition Association has actually been around for more than 77 years. So it was launched in 1946 after the National School Lunch Act became law, and that's when Congress allocated money to help feed kids in schools because they found out during World War II the recruits were malnourished. The association has really grown and changed over the years. We have more than 50,000 members and who feed kids in kindergarten through 12th grade around the country and do catering and all sorts of things. I think there's more than 14,700 school districts around the country. So, Patty, who are your members? They're the people in the schools, at the school district, in the state. So like what settings are they in and what are they doing? So our members are people who work in school districts. So just like, you know, every company has somebody in charge. Every school nutrition has what we consider a director or a supervisor who runs the school nutrition department in a large school district. So in Virginia, where I live in like Fairfax County, it's, you know, that's a hundred million dollar plus business because of the 180,000 students that are in that school district alone. And then that includes people that work for these directors. So, and again, if you have a countywide school district with hundreds of schools, you have to divide it up and they have people who oversee the schools down to each individual school has a manager, just like a McDonald's or a Chick-fil-A or, you know, a restaurant has a manager and then all the cooks and cashiers and servers, et cetera. So they're all members of the organization, as well as we have the manufacturers who make all the food products, equipment products, beverages, software, et cetera, that supply all the food and whatever it takes to run a food operation. Patty, is it the case that within a school district, they'll have the same menu or does each school, do they have the ability to make their own decisions about what to serve at lunch, for example, or what to serve at breakfast? Well, it's much, much more cost efficient that if it's a school district, maybe they have different menus at the elementary, middle, and high school. And because 
school meals or federal entitlement programs, USDA has regulations in terms of their nutrients per meal for the different age levels. But schools have, pre-COVID, they probably had three or four week menus, serve different foods and make it interesting and introduce new foods to students. But because of COVID supply chain issues, many of the school districts are now have to operate on a two-week menu cycle. Ah, I imagine that the environment that your members operate in is highly politicized because it's federally regulated. There's probably state regs and everybody seems to care about school nutrition and everyone's got an opinion on what's served in the cafeteria, including celebrity chefs and late night talk show hosts. So how do you operate in this environment? Because everyone's got an opinion. Well, luckily, SNA is bipartisan. It is something I think everyone in America can agree that we should be feeding our students healthy, nutritious meals in schools. It's been a core belief for the organization for a long time. Of course, we would like to see every student get a school meal as part of their school day, a school breakfast and a school lunch as part of their school day, just like they're giving computers today and books and busing and whatever else that takes a student to be successful in school today. But unfortunately, financially, there's the dollars are not there currently to support that. So before we get into the things that SNA is doing to thrive, let's talk about your journey. So how did you get to become CEO of the School Nutrition Association? So I actually started my career working in New York in advertising, marketing. And when I moved to the Virginia area in 1989, 90, there weren't many ad agencies. So that's why I found the World Associations. And I started working with a company called Smart House, which was an affiliate back then, which is Home Automation, which was affiliate to the National Association of Home Builders. And the VP that I was working for then decided, who'd been working in associations for years, she wanted to go get an executive director's job. And so she asked me once she got a job, would I like to come work with her? And I said, absolutely. And that's Barbara Belmont. A lot of people who work for associations may remember that name, but I did. I went to work with her. And once she joined, which was then the American School Food Service Association, that then became the School Nutrition Association when we did a rebranding in 2004, she was my mentor. Mm. And so she brought me there. And that's how I really sort of got into associations and started working in membership and doing market research and then quickly took on certification, credentialing, marketing, um, and eventually became the COO and loved working at SNA for all these years. In fact, I will be working there for 30 years and it was very uncommon in associations to be someplace so long, but started having my kids pretty early on when I started working with SNA and it was just a great place to work with a great mission and great members. And, you know, I have no regrets. It's been a lot of changes in the school nutrition field and associations of what we do. So I think I bring continuity on a historic knowledge to the organization that I think they find very beneficial. So you've been CEO since 2012. And before that, you were COO. Correct. What's the transition like from being COO to CEO? Like, what's the biggest difference? Well, one of the difference is because I've been there for so long and we're very fortunate to have a lot of staff who've been there long, that people have to understand relationships. We had to have some conversations with some staff that now who maybe had been friends and you no know, longer, that was always a hard conversation because hmm. I'm a very outgoing and friendly person. But when you become the CEO, it's a lot different. You have certain fiduciary duties. So I think you're wearing even more hats. And you have to be really good at multitasking and juggling and prioritizing. 
And you have to have be a collaborator and have difficult conversations and really drive the organization forward. Right. And I imagine that as COO, you are more internally focused versus as CEO, you're externally focused. And I imagine that you are traveling all over the country and being the face of SNA. Yes, no, traveling somewhat, but we use our members a lot. Ah. We use our board members. We had our board members going out to the states and visiting the states. Pre-COVID, we used to go visit like 28 states a year Wow! at their conferences and stuff. And maybe send them or a team of board members or members to represent us. So perhaps they'd go to the National Association of School Business Officials or uh, the superintendent's meeting or a dairy council meeting. And because they like to hear about the people who are serving the kids, they want to hear the firsthand perspective from the people that are serving the kids and what kids like and so on and so forth. So for me, that was actually, you know, like to be out and like to do those sorts of things, but it was a nice balance because I know a lot of CEOs spend a lot of hours on the road. So if you're visiting 28 states a year and visiting with the different schools and the school districts and gathering all this data, what do you do with that data? Where does it go? Well, it's important to collect data. I've always been very big in data. That was my first job out of college was doing market research. So I have real affinity for that. I think you need to do that to inform what new products and services you can offer. What do members like and dislike about meetings or maybe themes of what you should focus on? We have things like marketing campaigns, like National School Lunch Week and Breakfast Week. And, you know, you collect all this information because it's important. You have to always look in the member's point of view. I always try to remember staff. We work for the the organization. You're the staff. At the end of the day, it's the member's organization. Hmm. So they make the decisions. But whenever we're trying to develop products and services, you always want to have that member input because I think it's so critical. So what's it like to be a school lunch cafeteria person these days? It's a difficult job, especially since COVID, when everything shut down three years ago, on a Friday, right? We most shut our businesses down on Friday. Schools did too. And they turned around and by Monday, they were serving kids curbside. And unfortunately, back then, we didn't know a lot of what we knew about COVID. They had no masks. They had no gloves and all those things to protect themselves. And unfortunately, a lot of older people maybe worked in schools and to protect themselves and their families, some people stopped working. As you know, a lot of schools closed down and this sort of got a groove Hmm. And the schools sort of open up. But as we all know, supply chain, probably after the first six months, seven months, the supply chain challenges in the country really started to hit home. And schools have been one of the most hard hit because many of us were staying home and purchasing food and not eating out as much, et cetera. So all the manufacturers really had to focus on producing food to ensure that. And so the schools, because they didn't have a participation, you know, think about when schools were hybrid and stuff, you weren't feeding as many kids. And then with inflation and the prices of food, it's really made it quite difficult and really challenging, just like many companies today are having trouble finding staff. Schools are having the same problem and they don't have the money to compete with uh, chain fast food restaurants or stores or businesses that can provide signing bonuses and pay higher salaries. So it's been a real challenge. Wow. So let's talk about what SNA is doing. But before we do that, let's talk about membership. How's membership? Membership went down, like most organizations, especially because people weren't working in the schools. The schools shut down. 
But most we're seeing a decrease is the people working in the individual cafeterias who maybe are cashiers, cooks, things like that. But it's starting to increase again. Our membership for our director members, those are the people head up the programs in all the schools, that is actually growing. I truly believe it's because of the work that we've done to support our members over the last three years. So a big part of what you do is advocacy. And you say that that's really fueled your success and really helped your members a lot. So talk to us about that. Well, it's a big part of what we do because these programs are federal entitlement programs and they're highly regulated because in order to get a free meal, schools have to adhere to nutrition standards set by the USDA. And so while the programs have always had bipartisan support, you also need the money to be able to support the programs. When COVID hit, we knew going into it as we, you know, we're reading the, all reading the headlines, we figured some shutdown was coming, but there's a lot of regulations and being able to even offer and provide students meals that are not in the cafeteria themselves. So when they went to curbside feeding, there was a regulation for non-congruent seating that had to allow for them to be able to serve curbside and to go meals or for schools that even took meals and school buses and were driving around neighborhoods at bus stops and giving off food. So before that, there were no regs about this. So you had to work with Congress to develop regs fast and approve it. There was a reg that they had to be served in the school. Ah. We needed them to offer all these waivers. So I think there were hundreds of waivers that had to, for the various components of school breakfast and a school lunch and snacks and all these different things that happened. There's administrative reviews because they're federal programs and federal funding. So there's these reviews that have to happen. So all of these waivers were needed. So we quickly worked with USDA and kept Congress informed. We also needed to get more money when, you know, supply chain happened and the cost when schools were having to, you know, think about when you go to a a restaurant, you get Chinese food, right? You have all these containers. So all those containers had to be purchased to do those sorts of things. And of course, once the supply chain hit and then cost of food started rising because of supply chain issues and with inflation happening, the price of so many items have gone up so much that schools needed more money. And we're very fortunate that USDA helped in that. And about $2 billion in additional federal funding came to schools in the last two years to help them with that. And unfortunately, we're still seeing prices of food in schools going up, which we're concerned about. So our advocacy efforts continue as we try to get more funding and less regs. Hmm. It does cause a lot of work for them. So it's been a big part of always what we've done, but so much more important over the last three years. You've got your legislative fly-in coming up this week. Yep. What are your top issues this year? Well, we need more funding. Hmm. We were very fortunate last year as, again, a lot of the COVID waivers and regs were ending and schools were going to go back to operating under normal conditions. But again, once we knew the food prices, we had to get funding, but the funding was only approved for one year. I think we got 40 cents more per school lunch and about 15 cents for breakfast per meal. And every school day, there's about 30 million school lunches served every school day and 15 million school breakfasts. So it adds up to billions of meals a year. Right. Well, that was a one-year increase in the reimbursement rate. We need more money for next school year because price of food and everything has gone up since then. So that's a big part. Another big push for us is we believe that every student should receive a school breakfast and a lunch every day in their school in order to be successful, 
just like they get bus to school or they get books or they get computers, we believe they need a meal. And we have studies that show that kids who receive these meals do better in school, have less absenteeism, and there are less behavioral problems. And not only that, and a tough study, university study, a few years back showed the healthiest food that kids eat is actually in schools. Ah. So we are big components on having healthy school meals for all so that every kid gets these meals. And then parents don't have to worry about packing a lunch every day, also don't have the burden of the cost. I saw somewhere the average family is looking at an increase of about $400 a month, is it, for cost of food and everything else and gas when everything was really, really high, what it's costing a family. So it's quite expensive. And you can imagine for a family how much that would be appreciated given the cost of everything in the country that's going up. So on the advocacy side, you're really working with the regulators to give you the regs that you need as well as reduce some of the regs, but you're also providing a lot of professional development for your members so that they know how to navigate these regs, but also so that they know the latest research and science about school nutrition. So how important are these meetings and webinars? Real important. We offer our webinars for free. And the reason we do that is because there's an Institute of Child Nutrition that's funded by the government. That money is allotted to every year as part of USDA's budget. So it's hard to charge for a webinar when people are getting training for free. So our webinars have always been for free for members, and we have very strong participation in our Wednesday webinars. But we also have, when COVID happened, we started offering a lot of virtual meetings, obviously charging for those, because during COVID, it was needed you know, to understand when they got all these waivers and how to safely serve kids and protect the employees, basically, because we were all learning about COVID. But then even, you know, how do you keep participation up? You could imagine as schools were opening, starting to reopen and stuff, how to get kids eating again, procurement rules and what was required then, even the supply chain, how to, you know, what are the smart things to do? Or even, you know, as because of part of supply chain, schools could not get packaging. Or even last year when they opened up, even plates and trays and things like that. Wow. Some school districts are buying large, you know, the pizza box. You you buy a pizza and you get on a Friday. They were taking those pizza boxes and cutting them into fours to give served food on these pizza boxes and other clamshells, cutting them in half. Oh, my God. Because they couldn't get the products to produce because they were required to serve all these kids the meals and diverse settings during covid And you couldn't get the products because it just weren't available. Wow. And I bet that your members, probably like a lot of my clients, really relied on you to help them navigate how do we do this. And so that's why the webinars are so important. And is there a lot of research being done on child nutrition? Oh, sure. Yeah. A lot of organizations do it. We obviously promote it. USDA does a lot of research from an operational side. We do on an operational side. It's very important for our advocacy work our media stories that we put out to keep not just our members, but we believe it's important to the parents should be informed of what's happening in schools every day for their kids. So yeah, we do a lot of that in universities and there's a lot of advocacy groups. If I look back 30 years, there were always organizations concerned about child nutrition, but there were many, many groups that are very concerned about the health and safety and the growing obesity problem in this country. So there's more than 300 advocacy groups that get involved and focused on child nutrition and meet on a pretty regular basis as part of this child nutrition forum. But we are the one association that represents the school nutrition profession. So there are these phone calls with 300 organizations represented. Wow. 
Yes. Amazing. Yes. We've all been on those kinds of meetings since COVID, right? So, Patty, you've got something on your website. It's marketing and PR resources. And these are resources that your members can use. Yes. We think it's really important. You know, you think about marketing today and kids are, since they were little, right? You start watching cartoons or whatever, and so much of marketing is so important. And so our schools need the resources to do that. You know, a lot of schools at the open campus, especially getting middle and high school, they can walk down the street and go to a pizzeria or a Chick-fil-A and stuff. So our members need help to help market their programs. We try to make it fun and interesting. And we have things like National School Lunch Week in October every year and National School Breakfast Week, which is March. And we have even something called School Lunch Hero Day, which the School Lunch Lady book series, probably some people have heard about it. But one of them, an author, was a young man who grew up on school meals and he had a hard upbringing and one of the school lunch ladies really kind of took him in and looked after him and kind of made sure he got, you know, hot meal. And anyway, he then found out that she had passed away and died. And he thought she was just this really great person. He created this book series about her. Aww. And he does this day to celebrate school lunch heroes. And so we started every May. I think it's the first Friday of May. We do it. Our members dress up as superheroes and stuff like that. The kids get into it. And it's a really, really nice thing. You can imagine, you know, some low man on the totem pole in a school district, you know, they're not the administrator, they're not the teachers, but beloved by many people in the schools because of the work they do in feeding kids and really taking care of kids. Wow, Patty, it sounds like you all are busy, 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 and you've got the fly-in coming up and you've got your conference coming up. So I want to thank you for spending time with me today to talk about the things that you're doing to thrive. And thank you for everything you're doing for your members. And God bless your members for everything they're doing for the students. Well, thank you, Joanne. It's been a pleasure reconnecting with you. And I always love to share the work our members do. Again, it's a great organization, important work. What could be more important than feeding kids in schools to ensure the success in the future? So thank you. You're welcome. And I hope you can come back and talk to us about how your members are navigating the post-pandemic world in the next year. I would love to. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye! Bye!